Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Roland Clark, and I'm here today on the New Books Network talking to Dr. Hujar Vajrapalan, who is Senior Lecturer in East European Studies at the University of Amsterdam. Her special teaching and research interests include Russian cultural studies, cultural history, historical media, and new media cultures. Welcome to the podcast, Sudha. Thanks for inviting me, Roland. Uh, Sudha, usually when I pick up a book about relations between the Soviet Union, Cuba, and India during the Cold War, I expect to be reading about diplomats and foreign policy. What made you want to write about things instead? Thanks for this question, Roland. Well, I figured that there were many, many books written about uh, interstate relations, diplomatic summits, uh, you know, functionaries traveling to each other's countries and talking trade treaties. But what I, um, having grown up in India and remembering my own experience of what it was like uh, for India to be friendly with the Soviet Union and what impact that actually had on my everyday life, um, I thought it was time for someone to write a history of lived experiences of the Cold War, what it actually meant to live in a country which was, in a sense, at the intersections of these various ideological blocks, and how that that relationship materialized in our everyday lives. So the little things around our homes that pointed to this or that relationship. Um, so there's a huge theoretical literature that you've got Um, sitting behind this book, uh, which comes out in really subtle and nuanced ways. But most of the empirical evidence comes from 66 interviews that you did with people living in Cuba and India. Can you tell us what sorts of people you interviewed and how you found, like how you came across them? Mm -hmm. Yes, well, uh, as with most interviews and most oral histories, uh, especially about things that are closely related to one's own life. You begin with people that you know or that you've spoken to about uh, the topic. So I began first with a couple of pilot interviews with people I knew uh, who had grown up reading Soviet books or had Soviet uh, LPs at home. And I was just curious to see the kinds of things that would come up in during you know in the course of the conversation. And so I began um, with, with the Indian interlocutors. I began with a couple of colleagues whom I knew had grown up with Soviet books. And then uh, I had that kind of snowball with them introducing me to other people. Uh, For India, I used uh, social media as well to put out a post about how I was working on this and I was curious to see what people had in their homes. And I got uh, some really, really interesting responses, uh, you know, uh, interlocutors or potential interlocutors who had stumbled upon Soviet objects, uh, you know, in the secondhand market or who had traveled to Moscow. So that was, that kind of acquired a life of its own. Um, in Cuba, I was, uh, I traveled, of course, to Cuba and then I was introduced to um, a couple of people who had uh, a Soviet car, an old Soviet car, or who had had a Soviet car until recently. And then um, and then one thing led to the other. And, you know, I was being introduced to neighbors uh, who had Soviet uh, dishwashers or, uh, you know, food processors. 
So it just, again, like with India, you know, it kind of acquires a life of its own. And before you know it, you have people calling you, wanting to speak to you about these objects. So that was fairly easy after a while to find interlocutors. What was uh, particularly challenging about India was how few objects there were and how incidental they were to people's lives, which is actually also what made me think about this topic, because I was struck by this kind of seeming dissonance between this very close relationship between India and the Soviet Union, but also the absence of very overt material connections between the two. And so finding Indians to speak to was harder, more challenging, because often their encounters with Soviet material culture were, were very incidental um, and occasional. Uh, so, so this is what I basically did. I found a couple of people, had them introduce me to others. Mostly they were of varied professions, professional backgrounds. Uh, many were between the uh, were born between the 1930s and 1960s. But I also had a fair number of people in both India and Cuba who were born after the 1970s. Their memories of Soviet things tend to date to the late 80s or the early 90s. Uh, and I was struck and I was particularly interested in the difference in the way they remembered as well. And I think that that had a great deal to do with the, the changing geopolitics of the time. So that was, I found that curious as well, the connections between the way they remember the same object, depending on whether they were born in the 1940s or they were born in the 1970s. Mm. And it's a really interesting comparison between the two countries. Because as you say, Cuba is not as close to the Soviet Union, but they had a lot more things. And India is closer, but they have fewer things. And things allow you to get to live, lived experiences. You write in Chapter 1 that studying lived experiences disrupts grand narratives about geopolitics. Um, what big narratives did you find that were changed once you started talking about objects and people's relationships with them? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So, well, with the large narratives, just perhaps a small correction, Cuba was very close to the Soviet Union, and so was India. And Cuba was also heavily reliant on the Soviet Union, particularly because of the U.S. embargo that it had faced and continues to face. Uh, so both these relationships were close, but both these countries were in, interestingly avowedly independent in their foreign policies. And I found that um kind of seeming discrepancy really uh, interesting. Both countries uh, are not part, were never part of the East Bloc, physically speaking. They, they, they're uh, situated in an entirely different continent. Um, but they both spoke of close relationships with the Soviet Union, while at the same time nurturing relationships with other countries. And I thought that that intersection, the fact that they found themselves between these two blocks, interested in maintaining ties with a wider spectrum of countries, feeling free to nurture those ties with a wider spectrum of countries. Um, I thought that that larger picture made them comparable in many ways, their positionality in the non-aligned movement as well. All of this, I figured, was ground enough for comparison. Uh, and then the, the differences, the fact that the Cuba had a, a heavy Soviet material presence, you know, from large infrastructures to small objects, and India didn't. India had, you know, a few things like the books, but by like Soviet books, but for the for a large part, the Soviet material culture was very limited. So I found the similarities and the difference very noticeable and also worthy of comparison. Um, and normally when people do oral history interviews, they just sit down and talk to someone. But 
always there was objects at the center of your interviews. Mm-hmm. How do objects change the way that people remember things uh, when you interview them? Mm-hmm. Yes, and actually this goes back to the other question that you just asked me, which I didn't completely answer, I'm sorry, but the larger narratives, how did they disrupt these? So these larger narratives of India and Cuba being close friends are these narratives that we kind of absorb and we kind of perpetuate because we talk about them in the same ways, right? We say, oh, well, they were friends, they were great friends, the Friendship Treaty, they were allies, they were part of uh, this or that block or alliance. But uh, what I found by using objects, and this is the reason why I chose objects to go to your next question, um, was that people, because objects change hands, they have these very sort of checkered biographies, they move from place to place, they are gifted, they are found accidentally, they're found intentionally, they're rewarded. So they have these very uh, complex histories, objects do. And while looking at objects or focusing on them, people tend to talk about the very same period of the Cold War in ways that suggest these more personal experiences. They talk about friends, they talk about travel, they talk about student life, they talk about workplace relationships. And I found that perspective very intriguing and very important for us to nuance the way we we deal with these large narratives about Soviet geopolitics. Uh, So a lot of the Cuban people you talked to mentioned that they thought of the Soviet Union as having taken a more supporting role towards Cuba rather than the sort of colonial attitude that they'd seen from the United States. Mm -hmm. Could you talk us through very briefly what the political relations between Cuba and the Soviet Union were to help us understand why they're saying this sort of thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, they were obviously, as I said, very, very close, but that closeness was not always apparent. And also it wasn't, uh, it didn't preclude uh, animosities, hostilities and differences. So the Cuba had its revolution in 1959, but this wasn't a socialist revolution. It was an anti-Batista revolution. And it was only with the, the coming of the U.S. embargo a couple of years later that Cuba found itself at a loss, uh, bereft without U.S. help suddenly after decades and turning to new friends. And the Soviet Union found this an opportune moment to se- to, to step in and say, well, you know, perhaps the Americans aren't there for you, but we are. So that relationship came about perhaps more as, you know, as um, uh, it was a kind of accident in a sense, you know, a political accident at the time. And Q- uh, Castro says only in sometime in 61 or 62, that uh, this is a socialist or communist revolution. So I was um, interested in this relationship, having started off, you know, perhaps not so smoothly and in, in a sense inadvertently. And then also Cuba had, although it was, it came to be very dependent on the Soviet Union for commodities, it was kind of, Um, stridently independent in its foreign policy, seeking to effect communist revolutions or socialist revolutions elsewhere in Latin America on its own terms without Soviet help. Also, there were many, many furious debates within Cuba about how Cuban economy should proceed and not always imitate the Soviet Union. So this was a very... A very close relationship, but one that was also fraught with its contradictions, which also meant that a lot of Cuban interlocutors, when they spoke to me about this relationship, said they had a great deal of gratitude, but they never felt particularly close to the Soviet Union in the sense that they never felt they were 
um, they had cultural affinities. They never felt the Soviets also treated them as though they were lesser mortals. Although, of course, you do read reports in the press about how the Soviets did do that on occasion. So they remember this, but they remember these commodities. They talk about their dishwashers, their washing machines, all of that with gratitude, but always emphasizing at the same time that this was a relationship that was one of equals. So one of the examples they they gave me was the fact that these uh, ele- electric appliances were all manufactured in Cuba. You know, so it wasn't just dump the dumping of commodities, but the cooperation, the close cooperation between the Soviets and the Cubans in the making of these things. The fact that many of them were, and one of my interlocutors used this word, tropicalized, right? So they used local voltage systems and they were, you know, so in a sense, they had Cuban interests at heart. This was emphasized to me quite regularly in the interviews by those who were who remembered these commodities fondly because I also had a couple who were detractors in that sense. So the relationship was close, but it wasn't consistently close. There were moments of tension. And at the same time, the Cubans were left with the sense that they were not um, less than equal in this relationship. And so this comparison with the Americans is always a, a favorable one in that sense where the Cubans come out looking better than the Americans do. Um, how did Cubans get hold of Soviet things? Uh, variously. Well, when it comes to things like, you know, preserves and comestibles, it was they came from the entire socialist bloc. So now the interesting thing about trying to talk about Soviet objects is also that Cubans would say, well, this was Soviet, or perhaps it was Polish, or perhaps it was East German or Romanian. Um, so these were available on the market. A lot of their food um commodities were available on the market. Their electric appliances were often won as rewards in the workplace. So there were committees that were formed formed to reward merit and work ethic. And your reward was usually commodities from the socialist bloc. And these were also, they had a hierarchy of their own, you know, East German commodities were considered better, but Soviet commodities were more. And uh, so, I mean, so yes, so many of the people that I spoke to would say, I remember uh, one person whom I spoke to said that um, he won his car uh, as a result of his work in the Cuban labs, you know, trying to stop some sort of deadly virus from spreading in Cuba. And he was rewarded with this with this car. So often that's how they got their Soviet commodities. But then by the, by the 80s, mid-80s, I think, they had open markets where you could get some of these objects or these commodities at a slightly lower price uh, than they you know might have been available for on a free market um so just thinking about that guy who he won the car through his work mm-hmm. does that mean that uh, if they if they're given as reward for good work does that mean that soviet goods are sometimes linked to affluence or prestige or would someone look at you and go wow you've got a soviet car Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I did hear some of those stories, uh, particularly, you know, those who who went from living lives with less or limited access to material comfort before 59, and then finding themselves in, you know, well, not the lap of luxury, but certainly with more access to modern conveniences in the 1960s, that they would talk about the acquisition of these, you know, suddenly the air conditioner or um the washing machine or a car, the Soviet car, 
as though uh, these were markers of social mobility. So there was maybe maybe not affluence, but certainly some sort of social stature that comes from having a better job, uh, having a promised career, and therefore uh, these rewards that epitomized this larger relationship. So I did hear a lot of that. I do also remember uh, interlocutors talking about how they looked down upon Soviet commodities because... Um, they had had access to American commodities before the revolution. So having a Soviet air conditioner was not necessarily a step forward because they had had several material comforts um, because of their close relationship with the Americans in the 1950s. So it's really interesting. So the way they assess these objects and the way they connect them to to influence or social stature has a great deal to do with how the revolution changed their own social standing or sense of well-being. Um, did they like the things, the Soviet things, or did they try to replace them as soon as something else came along? I think they really, uh, many of them appreciated it. I know that one of my interlocutors, uh, Cuban interlocutors, travelled to uh, Moscow to study Russian and says to me, you know, I remember that we had these these extremely good quality American soaps and French fragrances. And then I went to Moscow and I was struck by the the stark simplicity of things. And she began saying this, but then, you know, halfway through that paragraph, she started talking about how it was important to understand why the Soviets made things as simply as they did, as if to explain that we shouldn't judge this kind of standard of production, you know, that there is a historical context to this. So it's admiration, but it's also, it's an admiration that's always couched in these historical explanations of why things were as simple or as perhaps unattractive as they sometimes said as they were. They were sturdy, they were meant for a different kind of uh, function and purpose and consumer market. And therefore, we shouldn't judge. So, you know, there's never this kind of glowing uh, praise and glowing tribute to Soviet material culture. It's always a kind of careful, cautious praise couched in these historical explanations. And so, yes, when the 90s came around in Cuba and they were suddenly uh, cut off from Soviet commodities and they had to make do, uh, several of them would talk about how, well, you know, things stopped working, they couldn't find the parts to fix them. And then uh, in 2004 or 5, 2005, they had what they call the energy revolution when they were all told to switch to more sustainable uh, electric durables. And all of them seized the opportunity, if they could, if they had the means, to switch to, you know, refrigerators from China or Korea or elsewhere or Taiwan. And um, so they did replace them when they could. Some of them replaced them because they had to, because they were no longer working. And these, you know, these parts, these components weren't available anymore. And others switched because they could and they wanted to. Um, But there is, so, you know, these are not mutually exclusive things. They liked these things, but they were quite happy to replace them with with better things. I did have a few interlocutors, actually, yeah, certainly about a handful who said to me, well, you know, we have replaced them. These things look nicer. The Taiwanese fridge the Ameri- or the um, South Korean washing machine. But none of them last as long as the Soviet things did. They often make this comparison between Soviet commodities and present-day Chinese 
commodities as well. They say the Chinese appliances don't last as long as the Soviet appliances did. So they liked them. They found them sturdy. They were willing to replace them when they could. Um, but they still kind of make these, um, you know, statements about how things were better and more durable when the Soviets were exporting them. Mm, that's something that really impressed me in the book is how often people say, you know, the things from yesterday were better, were the lasted longer than the things today. It reminds me a lot of my parents. <laughs> yes. Um, how did Cubans use the things they had in their homes to talk about the time they'd spent studying or living in the Soviet Union? It depended on the things. Uh, so, for instance, with the, the consumer durables, you know, with the, with the household appliances, often these were linked to uh, simply stories of, you know, working and finding employment in Cuba, uh, their careers, their career, career trajectories and meeting with the Soviets. But um, the souvenirs, you know, gifts, these are all connected to stories of travel. And so I had a fairly large cohort of interlocutors who went to Moscow to study Russian. This was in 1963-64 when Castro called out to young people in Havana to say, you know, uh, this, if you study Russian, then there is a future for you because we have all this technical help coming in from the Soviet Union. Uh, but we don't have people who understand, you know, the technical manuals or who can in interact with Soviet engineers when they come here. So we need more people to study Russian. And so a fairly large cohort of my Cuban interlocutors were actually the first generation of Cubans to go to Moscow to study Russian. And the things that they have, you know, the the porcelain, the lacquerware, the um, books, photographs, stamp collections, these are all... Um, things that they acquired or were gifted during their first sojourn in the Soviet Union. And so they use these kinds of objects to talk about personal ties, to talk about effective ties with, you know, PhD supervisors, with colleagues, with classmates, with their landladies and landlords. So it gives you a very different impression of the geopolitics of the time. To go back to what I said right at the very outset, I think that these kinds of stories give you a sense of what scholars have called the quiet politics of geopolitical uh, ties and diplomacy, the everyday of geopolitical ties. And I really, really enjoyed hearing these stories because they had very little to do with, you know, large scale cooperation, trade numbers or, you know, summits and, you know, hot topics like the Cuban Missile Crisis, very little to, to do with all of that and mainly to do with people and how hospitable they were, how friendly, how open they were to Cuban ideas and things and how eager they were to learn. And also a lot of my Cuban interlocutors said when they went from Cuba to the Soviet Union, an entire world opened up for them. And they were able to, you know, experience things that they hadn't before. They were able to meet people of other nationalities that they couldn't on the South American continent. So these kinds of stories, I thought, were really, really uh, crucial for me to kind of build this history of these ties from the perspective of uh, lived experience. Mm, I was impressed by how often you're telling a story of a dishwasher and then suddenly there's a photograph attached to it. Yeah. Um, of the owner standing next to someone who was important to them as part mm -hmm. of that story. Mm -hmm. um, thinking about India then, how did India's relationship with the Soviet Union change over time? 
Um, it changed. Well, I guess it, I won't go way back because uh, perhaps we don't have time for that. But let me just briefly say that before independence, uh, which which India got in 1947, the ties between India and the Soviet Union were were not um, were not great. I mean, there was some help from the Soviet Communist Party and from Vox, which is their uh, Committee for External Relations, to Indian communists who were fighting for independence. But uh, in general, they kind of stayed away uh, from the Indian independence movement. They didn't care to comment on it except very negatively because they didn't think non-violence was a viable strategy. But then after independence, when we we didn't have a communist government in place, but we had what they called a bourgeois nationalist government, um, and ties became very close. But this was also the time of Khrushchev and peaceful coexistence and looking to these newly independent colonies to build ties and to also, in a sense, stave off the influence of the Americans who were also looking to build ties with all of these countries. So there was this kind of fertile ground that emerged in the aftermath of the independ- of independence in many of these countries when the Soviets and the Americans vied with each other to have a, a, a kind of prevail, you know, to have a more influential cultural or political role. So then ties between India and the Soviet Union got really close uh, in the 19, uh, mid-1950s onwards. And uh, in the early 70s, there was this friendship treaty, which has been, you know, much touted in all of the literature. And there was um, a wide spectrum of cultural ties between the two countries. In geopolitics, in the UN, uh, India chose to stay neutral on several of the hot topics of the time, you know, the Hungarian crisis in 56, the Czech, the Prague Spring in 68, Afghanistan, all of these, India chose to stay neutral or downplay its opposition to what was happening. And it was sort of, it was opposed to what was happening, but it never took a stance against the Soviet Union. So ties were very close. But at the same time, and this also comes through in the stories that get told to me uh, by Indians, uh, ties with the West were also, um, if not as uh, fruitful in terms of trade and other things, certainly very friendly. And the aspiration to study in the West was an aspiration that all Indian middle class people felt. So there was no, there was no, uh, in a sense, there was no exclusively close relationship with the Soviet Union, it did not preclude ties with with others. And the same can be said for Cuba, which also continued to trade with many, many other countries. When you started asking people about Soviet objects in India, the thing that came up most was books. Mm -hmm. Why, Why was that? Well, because those were the only formally exported commodities that the Soviets sent to India. I mean, we did not have a a commodity trade with the Soviet Union, which involved Soviet exports to India. There was the domestic policy at the time, especially in the 70s, was in fact uh, to have an an exceptionally strong focus on domestic production and to discourage imports because the idea was to strengthen domestic production of all commodities. So, uh, So by virtue of this, we did not import commodities from the Soviet Union. In fact, by the late by the mid-late 80s, the Soviet Union was importing commodities from India, uh, often because these were made in India with Western components, Western components that were not exported to the Soviet Union. So this way, the Soviet Union uh, got a little bit of a taste of um, Western commodity culture as well. So the only things that were actually exported to India formally 
uh, were books. And these were fiction. These were children's fiction largely, but they were also popular science books uh, for universities and for technical institutes. They were hugely popular and they continue to be popular in India. Um, a lot of people spoke very positively about so- Soviet books compared to British or American books. What did they like about them? What they liked about them was the fact, was actually a lot of them mentioned the aesthetics. So they loved the design of Soviet books. Some of them who didn't actually have them with them during the interview would say, you know, I distinctly remember how they looked. And if I shut my eyes now, I can actually feel the rough texture of those of those uh, uh, bound volumes. Um, many of them loved that these and this was the, one of the most striking comments, I think, that they that Soviet books never seemed to patronize their readers. They seemed to treat their readers as adult readers, even if they were writing, if they were talking about children's books. And uh, that also with children's literature, you know, because, I mean, I remember from growing up in India as well, we grew up with, you know, Enid Blyton and... I mean, none of us actually ever went to boarding school. So these were all lovely books to read, but these were not experiences that we could relate to, you know, uh, getting your little package at Christmas with uh, and, and then roasting chestnuts, you know, in the heart. I mean, these were not things we did. And when we looked, when we read Soviet literature, you know, parents were working, you went to school, you caught a bus, you did all of these things that seemed so real. And so several of my interlocutors said with the children's literature that these books prepared you for life in a way that Anglo-American literature didn't. We read them both equally, but but Soviet books seemed to do a better job of sensitizing you to some of these, these issues. Uh, when it comes to Soviet popular science books, I know that I at least had one interlocutor who said to me that if it hadn't been for them, a whole generation in India perhaps wouldn't have grown up with that interest in science that they might have had, um, you know, if India actually invested in books of that sort, which they didn't. So Soviet science, popular science also introduced several of my interlocutors to science and technology. All of them went on to do something in engineering or physics or something else. And almost all of them owed that to their exposure to Soviet science books. And they said that these were better. And it was interesting because while the children's fiction readers would say they prepared you for the adult world, um, uh, Soviet science books uh, readers would also say, you know, they never played around. There was never an attempt to dumb down the content. It was always very theoretical. The first chapter of science books always threw you in at the deep end. And they and Indian readers whom I spoke to said they enjoyed that about Soviet books. They kind of treated you like you could handle them. What sorts of other objects did Indians have in their homes? Uh, and what associations did those Soviet objects have for them? Yeah, the other objects are really, really interesting. In fact, that might have been my favorite chapter to write because those objects were just so accidental in, in their presence, you know, in people's lives. It was literally stories like I happened to go somewhere and I happened to find this thing and I only later found out that it was Soviet, you know. And so I was really, really struck by these stories. I loved them. I mean, like the one story of the the my Indian um, respondent interlocutor who said that her father found a record player in a secondhand market in a port city where Soviets visited a great deal. And uh, they didn't know until later that it was uh, Soviet because someone said that font on it is Cyrillic. 
And uh, no one actually knew what those words meant. And those weren't the days of the internet. You couldn't look that up quickly. And so they simply pressed all these buttons to see what did what. And and then I, I, I loved this memory of this record player. And again, this, this is true of all my interviews. These objects all become the pivot of stories about relationships, you know, so also other people. So the story of the Soviet record player in this living room becomes a story of all these people who hovered around it, wondering if it would stop working, start working, what would happen to it. And, you know, what was the strange thing, neighbors visiting to see it and um and then eventually this thing lasted until literally a few years ago you know and so the story of this record player found accidentally is told with so much almost reluctant admiration um and but it's also a story of this kind of you know this graph of emotions right beginning with wonder and surprise and you know um curiosity and ending with this with this admiration for a product that was not very impressive to look at, but it lasted well over four decades. So I was also curious about that kind of attitude. And one of the things about looking at lived experiences is also getting a sense of people's uh, emotional ideas about geopolitics, right? So the idea of looking at emotions in geopolitics, the everyday feelings of being friends with this or that uh, state or, you know, being uh, adversely affected by by another state. How do these politics play out in everyday emotions? And so this emotion of, you know, um, being skeptical and thinking something doesn't look great and sort of all the way to the end to this reluctant admiration and um, pride in something that was made. I was struck by these by these emotions and also what it says about both the incidental nature of Soviet objects in India, but also uh, the ambivalent uh, emotions of these times, right? I mean, we don't know them very well, but we had a very good sense that they were on our side. They seemed to make things that weren't very great looking, but they all lasted. So that ambivalence, it's just so, so interesting when you're looking at geopolitics as lived experience. Hmm. Um, you said before that you pointed out that the Cuban revolution originally was not a socialist revolution and India's first post-war government was not a socialist government. Um, for both Indians and Cubans, did liking Soviet things mean that they also liked the Soviet version of communism or socialism? Yeah, that's an interesting question, actually. Yeah, well, with, with India, certainly the, the initial post-independence government was averse to communism, uh, took a public stance against it. Uh, uh, the first prime minister of India was was a liberal democrat, uh, was avowedly democratic, um, but he believed that there were certain things that the communist uh, experiment in the Soviet Union had shown was that um, were, were certainly worthy of emulation. And one of these things was, of course, the five-year plans. So economic planning was something that the Indian government, although it wasn't communist, um, it, the, the Indian government admired. Oh, the Indian constitution only took on the word socialist much later. But in a sense, the political ethos of post-independence India was a socialist ethos. It was very much inclined towards development economics, and, um, you know, looking at human development indices in order to talk about economic development rather than, um, you know, the consumer industry and that kind of thing. So this was there were there was a socialist temperament that was pervasive up until, uh, I might say, even mid 1990s. 
but India was never communist. Uh, India does have a communist party, a couple, but that's a digression. But India has never been uh, communist. Uh, Cuba, on the other hand, of course, did you um, do have Cuban communism, but they insisted that their way was a separate one. There was also a great deal of debate on what kind of economic policies Cuban communism must entail, and these were different from Soviet economic policies. So they never accepted Soviet communism lock, stock, and barrel. They accepted Soviet uh, principles of socialist modernization. Uh, and India was averse to the undemocratic nature of the communist union, uh, the communist uh, government of the Soviet Union, and uh, Cuba had its own issues with the way Soviet communism played out. So no, they did not embrace Soviet communism. They just, but what comes across very strongly is this admiration for. Uh, Soviet principles of socialist modernization, this idea that you could create consumer goods for vast groups of people, that the idea that the Soviet Union privileged access over quality, you know, more and more people had access to things um, than uh, they had before. And of course, also made this possible for Cubans, for instance. So these were the kinds of social principles that they admired and not the ideology of communism itself. Hmm. So just just liking a record player doesn't make you a communist? No, no, it doesn't, which is what is so interesting about looking at objects, right? Because if I were to look at the large narratives, to go back to your first question, I would say, well, yeah, India was an ally of the Soviet Union, and so were the Cubans. And in a large narrative, that would pretty much be the end of that story. But if you look at objects, and if you look at people's relationships and the ways in which they talk about those, how those objects changed hands, then you get these other emotions that suggest the largely uh, ambivalent uh, attitude that most people had towards the Soviet Union, you know? And it and the sense in which, and I, I talk about this in my book as well, that solidarities, even if they were felt, they did not preclude other affinities. So the solidarity with the Soviet Union experienced because of whatever support they might have uh, extended on various occasions did not preclude close ties or even an admiration for uh, the way other countries did things, you know, especially in the West. So these, so there was this kind of very easy cohabitation of these ideas, which is what I was trying to get at when I spoke about lived experience. Mm, means we really have to think more deeply about the way that we do geopolitics and we do histories of international relations. But that's about all we've got time for today. Um, thank you so much for talking us through this really interesting topic. Thank you very much, Roland. It's been a pleasure.